Thank you, Russell. And Christy, I invite you to open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to begin a series out of 1 Corinthians for this summer. The title of today's message is The Church Perfected. Anybody here go to the perfect church? I heard a young lady one time say, I'm looking for the perfect man. And why is it we, ladies and guys, we, you, know, you spend half your life looking for the perfect husband, and then you spend the rest of your life trying to change him? What is that all about? I did hear one young lady say, I finally found Mr. Wright, but after I married him, I didn't realize his first name was Always. Thanks for the courtesy laugh from the front row. I wonder sometimes about the church. Sometimes you can tell a lot about what goes on inside of a church by what's on the sign in front of the church. I've got a few for you this morning, kind of not my top ten, but just ten signs that I've seen or seen other places. One church sign says, forgive your enemies. It will mess with their mind. Another one said, God expects spiritual fruit, not religious nuts. You people need to loosen up. (laughs) A closed mouth gathers no foot. A cold church is like cold butter. It doesn't spread well. I saw this one on 707 last September, October. You're going to have to think about this one. Autumn leaves. Jesus doesn't. Some of you are just getting it, and others of you are saying, I still don't get it. We'll explain it at lunch. Another church sign, can't sleep? Come hear a sermon. Another church, church, cheaper than NFL tickets. That was probably in Dallas or somewhere. I like this one. Church parking only. Violators will be baptized. I'll close on this one. Don't let worry kill you. Let the church help. I don't know what you're looking for in the perfect church, but I have found the perfect church. It's in Atlanta, Georgia. Here's a picture of it. It's the perfect church. I went on their website. I just Googled the perfect church just to see what was out there. This church actually exists in Atlanta, Georgia. And actually, if you go on their website, they make a pretty good case for why they've named their church the perfect church. I just want to say to you, if you're looking for the perfect church, it probably won't be once you join. All right? The church is made up of what? People. I had a minister tell me, this is the truth. Some of you think, you know, is this a preacher story? You tell me the truth. Listen, stuff that happens to me is funny enough, I don't have to make this stuff up. I literally had a minister one time say to me, you know what? The ministry wouldn't be so bad if it wasn't for people. I mean, think about it. That's pretty sad when we get to the point where, you know, I'd enjoy the ministry <laughs> if it just wasn't for the people I have to minister with. Listen, Paul writes a letter to the Corinthian Christians. This is a church that was about as far away from Jerusalem as you can get. Not quite, but it's over in Greece. It's a long way away. Paul had spent 18 months of his life establishing a church And he's no longer there. He's just away from the church now, but he's hearing about the church. And some of the things he's hearing, some of these things are disturbing. So we're going to unpack that this summer through 1 Corinthians. But we really start out kind of on a high note. Paul starts with a greeting that just really sounds pretty good. And then he gets into one major issue in the church. So let me start by reading just the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God 
and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you're not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with him, his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Contrary to popular belief, the church is not a brick building. The church isn't a building made by hands. The church is the people of God, the called out ones. In fact, that's what literally the word church means. And so when Paul writes this letter, he's writing to a letter of the church that are made up of people. Don't miss sight of that. He starts off with a typical greeting in those days. I don't know about, you know, we don't even write letters anymore. We write emails, and so it's pretty obvious now when you get an email who it came from, right? Whether you're going to open it, whether it was forwarded to you or whatever, or whether it has a thread at the end of it. Y'all get those emails? If you don't forward this to ten of your best friends, I don't love you anymore. I mean, that's kind of, you know, those kind of threats at the end of it. Well, back in the day, students, you don't know about that. We used to write letters and put stamps on envelopes, and, like, we had to take them somewhere, and somebody else would carry it to their house. It may take a week to get there. In fact, a month later, you may get it back that it was undeliverable. And you're wondering, where has it been for the last month? It's been in male purgatory or something for like a month trying to, you know, trying to get there. But we used to sign our letters at the end, right? And when you write letters, you still sign them at the end. Well, in the New Testament time, Paul wasn't the only one that did this. I liked what they did. They tell you right up front, long letter, <laughs> but here's who it's from. And Paul identifies himself. Paul wrote 13 of the letters of the New Testament. And in most of them, not all, but in most of them, he said this. He said, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does he have to identify himself as an apostle? They knew who Paul was. But what Paul was about to say to them had to come on some authority. And so Paul said, here's the authority by which I'm writing. I'm writing to you by the fact I've been called by God to be an apostle. That's my authority. Not that I'm bragging about that, but that's just who I am. I'm Paul, and I've got this guy with me named Sosthenes. And, and who in the world this guy was, some scholars think he may have been the guy writing this down for Paul. We know that Paul didn't write his own letters. He dictated them, and I'll show you one instance of that in the passage this morning. But he dictated, and they think it may have been this guy, Sosthenes, that was the one who was taking dictation. And there's some other, we see this guy's name mentioned over in Acts chapter 18, so we know that he was with Paul. He was a convert. He actually uh, had been a Jew that was in control of the temple and uh, actually got beaten at one time in Acts chapter 18, but we believe obviously he's come to faith in Christ now. So he's with Paul, so he's writing this letter. And look who he writes it to, to the church in Corinth. But he gets more specific to those, those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Have you been sanctified? Some of you are saying, well, I might know if I knew what that was. What does that mean? It's the root word holy. Are you holy? Paul's writing to a group of believers in this church in Corinth, and he says, you have been made holy. Another definition of the word is you've been set apart. 
Well, I want that to sink in for a minute. Let's take that from 2,000 years ago into our today. If Paul was to write that letter to you today, not just to your church, but you, you got that email from Paul. Would he write to you as being sanctified? Don't raise your hand, but let me just say, how many of you feel holy? Comparatively speaking, how many of you feel as holy as Billy Graham? Most of you are sitting here thinking, well, no way. No way I'm as holy as Billy Graham. How about this one? How many of you feel as holy as Jesus Christ? Here's the problem with our thinking. We think holiness is about our behavior. It's not about our behavior. Holy living does not make you holy. The problem with that is, as a teenager, I used to think, you know, as long as I could live two or three days without messing up, I'd feel good enough to go to church on Wednesday night and maybe even participate in the Bible study. My thinking was so messed up. It's all about my behavior. Paul goes on to say, here's how you were made holy. You were sanctified how? In your behavior? No. You were sanctified in living 40 days with no sin. No. You were sanctified how? In Christ Jesus. I want to teach you one Greek word today. Can I teach you one Greek word? I want you to repeat this with me. The word in, in English, in, I-N, here's how it's pronounced in Greek. In. Everybody say that after me. In. Okay, all right, you just learned a Greek word. Now, to translate it, transliterate it, it would really be spelled like E-N. But here's what it means. It denotes a fixed position. It, it denotes a position of rest. Here's what Paul's saying. You've been sanctified not in your flesh. You haven't been sanctified in the fact that you got a list of instructions and you carried him to the letter or to the best of your ability. No, because if that was what the basis of being holy was based on, none of us are holy. It's based on in Christ Jesus. Fixed position. Position of rest. What does that mean? It means it's settled as far as God. The day you came to Christ, you become in Christ. Fixed position. Position of rest. What does that mean? It means I can rest there. I rest in that. Now, God's got a plan for your life. Don't, don't go too far with that. You were saved by grace, but Ephesians 2.10 says you're created in Christ Jesus for good works. God's got some stuff for you to do. But listen, you don't become pleasing to God by doing the stuff. You became pleasing to God the day you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. In Christ. He said sanctified in Christ. He goes on to say saints by calling. I just got to tell you, Paul is about to unfold some stuff on these people, okay? There are some problems in this church. There's divisions on doctrine, and there's a lot of immorality going on. And yet Paul's calling them saints. How can he do that? Well, because their saintliness is not based on their behavior. It's based on who they are in Christ. A preacher one time was asked to do a funeral. Guy's brother came to him and said, my brother just died. I want you to do his funeral. And the preacher said, I'm not sure I want to do his funeral. He had a reputation in town. And the guy said, not only that, but I want you at some point in the message to call him a saint. It's important to me that he, on his, you know, on his funeral day, that he's be called a saint. And the guy said, there's no way. I know this. Everybody in town knew this guy. He said, I tell you what, I'll donate a million dollars to the church building program if you'll do his funeral and call him a saint preacher said okay so he got up and preached the sermon he said everybody knew this guy they knew he was a scoundrel he was a philanderer 
He was mean to everybody. As far as I know, he never did a good thing in his life. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. (laughs) Well, we'd all kind of like that to be said about us at some point in time. Paul is saying it about this church in Corinth. And folks, I just got to tell you, it gives me hope. Because as we unpacked 1 Corinthians, you're going to see some areas of life that we're struggling in ourselves. And I'm so glad my position in Christ is not based on my strength. It's based on Him. The people had been sanctified. In fact, it's, pa- it's past tense. It ha- you have been made holy. You have been set apart. And then he goes on to say that they are the ones who call on the name, their Lord and ours. Here's the good thing. Paul is saying, listen, these people over there in Greece, and as people read this letter in other parts of the known world at that time, they would probably look at some of those people. And one of the controversies in the church was, well, yeah, we've come to faith in Christ, but these people hadn't jumped through all the hoops. No, Paul's saying, uh-uh, no. They've got the same Lord that we do. The Lord Jesus Christ is their Lord just like ours. And then he offers this word of grace and peace. Most all of his letters would have that word in there. Grace and peace from God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace. Grace meaning receiving something you don't deserve. Peace meaning harmony and relationships. It means a blessing. And here's what Paul says. I thank God always concerning you. Now, Paul's building up to unloading on him. We're going to read some scripture here in just a minute where he unloads on him, but he still says, I thank God for you. I thank God for the testimony of what's happened in your life, for the grace that has been poured out in your life. In fact, Paul goes on and says, I thank God for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. Let me share a few things that cannot exist in grace. I've already told you grace is receiving what you don't deserve. Three things that can't exist if grace exists. Number one is guilt. Guilt. Guilt is that attitude that, that basically, I don't deserve this. When you finally get to the place in the Christian life where you're saying to God, I don't deserve this, you finally got grace. Because you don't deserve grace. Listen to me. Grace only operates where there is sin. If you have never sinned, then you don't need grace. Now, if you claim you've never sinned, you've got other problems. You've broken one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not lie. Okay? But guilt doesn't exist where there's grace. You remember what Paul said over in Romans chapter 7? Woe is me, man. The thing I want to do, I don't do. And the things I shouldn't do, the things I don't want to do, that's the very things I do. Oh, woe is me. And then in verse 1 of chapter 8, but therefore now there is no condemnation. For who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. So guilt doesn't exist where grace exists. Second is obligation. Obligation. You can't repay grace. If you could repay it, it's something you earned. And what does Ephesians 2 says? It's unearned. For by grace you are saved, and that not of yourself. It's a gift. Now I realize in our generation we don't understand gift either, right? Somebody gives you a gift and you're like, oh, I didn't get you anything. Well, it's not a gift if you've got to pay for it. We have two donut stores real close to the chapel. One's right over there, Krispy Kreme. The other one's over here, Dunkin' Donuts. Anybody getting hungry for donuts? 
Krispy Kreme every year does a free donut. All you got to do is come through the drive-thru. I'm here for my free donut. And they give you your free donut. Well, not to be outdone, Dunkin' Donuts, about a week later. Free donut with the purchase of a small coffee. I'm thinking, man, they must go to church because they don't get it either. Free means you don't pay for it. Don't tell me it's free if I got to pay $4.99 shipping and handling. That's not free. People call you on the phone. We want to send you a free. I'm like, great, thank you. No, what? It's a come on, man. It's a scam because they want you to pay for it. Grace is not a scam. Grace doesn't come with obligations. Last, it doesn't come with merit. It's not offered only to good people. God didn't look at us and say, you deserve grace. You've earned it. Based on your merit, I'm going to offer you grace. No. God looked at us, and while we were sinners, Romans 5, 8 says, Jesus died for us. So Paul has just unpacked some incredible things about these people, describing the church And then he says, the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. Isn't that awesome? Here's what Paul's saying. Everything we've ever heard about Christ has been confirmed in you. Wow. You realize by the way you live your life, you're given a testimony of who Christ is. When you claim the name Jesus and people watch your life, you're given an example. You're given a testimony of who Jesus is. Unfortunately, sometimes a testimony is is mixed. Sometimes it's the wrong picture. So what we've got to keep reminding people is, hey, I'm saved by grace. And God's doing a work in my life that He's promised to bring about to completion. But, hey, you've got to understand something. I still fall on the grace of Jesus Christ. The testimony has been confirmed about you in Christ Jesus. You're awaiting eagerly the revelation of His Lord And then the bottom line, he's talking about God will confirm you blameless. But the last point in this passage, God is faithful. I just love that. Paul's saying it's not about you, it's about God. He is faithful. God has made a promise. God has begun a work in your life that he will bring about to completion. And God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son. The word fellowship means unity. It means no division. And it's interesting that he uses that word there because in the next verse, he's going to start a passage where he's talking about one of the first problems he wants to address at the church in Corinth. Let me read that passage beginning in verse 10. Now, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. No, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, and so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any other. What's Paul saying? Paul is saying, the first thing that I want to address in this church, in fact, the word now, it's one of those transition words. Paul's just spent nine verses talking about some good things about this church. In fact, what he's basically saying is, based on the fact of who you are in Christ, it ought to affect your life. Your life ought to be different. 
if you've really come to faith in Christ, there ought to be a distinguishing mark in your life that you're a believer. You're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not your own anymore. You've been bought with a price. But Paul says, now, I exhort you. Literally, Paul says, the word means to be called alongside of. Paul's basically saying, come here a minute. I exhort you. Come over here and let me instruct you. Let me put my arm around you a minute as a loving father. And let me say to you, I exhort you on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you all agree. The word literally means that you'd say the same thing. Before you get out of here and say, okay, the preacher's saying that we've all got to say the same thing. Listen, God created you different. We've all been created unique with individual gifts and abilities and things like that. We're not talking about, and students, you're not going to get this, we're not talking about Stepford Wives Christians here. But Paul is saying this, I'm praying that you would be united. I'm praying there'd be no division among you. I'm praying that you'd speak the same thing. Literally, that you'd get it about what is the truth about Jesus Christ so that when people hear the testimony of your mouth and watch the witness of your life, they wouldn't get mixed reviews. That you are saying the same thing. That there be no divisions. It's the word that we get the word schism or schism from. To split or gap. That you also be made complete. And I look at this passage and think, why did Paul start here? Because there was gross immorality happening in the lives of these people. There was other doctrinal issues that seemed weightier than this. And yet Paul starts with this. Hey, you folks got to be united. One of the reasons he did it was Jesus said it. Jesus said, they will know. The people outside will know you're my followers by the way you treat one another, by your love for one another. And right now at the church in Corinth, y'all are just a bunch of cliques. Y'all have just been split up. You've been divided. And Paul says, Jesus hasn't been divided, has he? I'm praying you agree there'd be no divisions. You'd be made complete. The word complete is also used in the Greek language for mending nets. Fishermen back then would throw nets into the water and collect fish. That's how they fished. They caught a bunch at one time. And one of the things they had to do after the day was over a fishing, they had to go back and fix the nets because holes in the nets allowed fish to escape. So when Paul says, I'm praying that you'd be made complete, literally that you'd be fixed, that you'd be knit back together and not be divided. And I love Paul. He says, Paul says, I've been informed concerning you. But the word he uses for informed means to make plain or to make clear. It kind of comes with the connotation that Paul didn't want to believe it at first. So they had to reiterate, no, really, there are divisions there. And, and Paul names names. He does it elsewhere in his writings. Paul says, I've been informed by Chloe's people. By Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. There's wranglings, there's fightings going on among you. And then just to be more specific, I mean this. In case you're reading this letter and thinking, what could he be talking about? Well, some of you are saying that I'm of Paul. Some of you are saying I'm of Apollo. Some of you are saying I'm of Cephas. Some of you are saying I'm of Christ. What were they doing? Well, Paul had been there for 18 months. Some of them were kind of wearing that as a badge of honor. I've been in this church since Paul was here. I'm of Paul. Well, the guy that followed Paul was a guy named Apollos. He's the one that Paul sent there to start pastoring the church after Paul left. Apollos. Some said, I'm of, I'm of Apollos. He's a better preacher than Paul anyway. 
Some said, I, I'm, I'm of Cephas. Who is that? That's Peter. We get real confusing in Scripture when you read about Peter because his name was Simon. Jesus changed his name to the rock, Peter. But in Aramaic, the name Peter was Cephas. So that's who this is. So apparently Peter had had some ministry in this area too. And some were saying, hey, I'm of one of the original twelve. And then some of you were saying, I'm of Christ, which sounds good, but the way Paul mentions it, 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 apparently that wasn't good either. It was just an opportunity for them to divide themselves and become cliques. Why does that still happen to this day? Now, I know it doesn't happen in your church, but I hear about this. In other churches far, far away, there's still a problem with cliques. And sometimes it is over the pastor. Sometimes we elevate the pastor to the extent where we, we put him on too high of a pedestal. And when he leaves, you can't accept the next guy. And people keep looking back to the glory day. And when this guy leaves, they finally start telling you, know, I didn't like him anyway. I, I never did like him. Probably because you're hurt that he left. I've always liked that other guy better. It's amazing sometimes when you go into churches, you're hearing about pastors from 20 years ago. What divides you at your church? I've seen it over softball teams. I've seen it over the color of the carpet. I've seen it over the style of music. What's Paul saying? Hey, listen, church shouldn't be about that. Paul said, when I came there, I wasn't trying to get up a group to worship me? Paul said, in fact, I'm, I'm thankful I didn't baptize any of you. Well, I did baptize this guy and his family and this guy. And then he keeps talking. He said, wait, wait a minute. And here, I think this is evidence that Paul was dictating this. We know it from other ways that Paul dictated his letters. But I think here it's just as he's speaking, he thinks, oh, yeah, and I did, yeah, I did baptize. Just so nobody says I'm not telling the truth, I did baptize that guy in his household. But other than that, I didn't baptize any of you. And why is Paul grateful about that? Didn't Jesus tell us to go and baptize people? Absolutely. But Paul said, I'm one of the apostles that has been entrusted with the message of the Savior. And so if I baptize people, people are going to be saying, I'm of Paul. Do you realize Jesus didn't baptize anybody? And yet he told us to go and baptize. So Paul said, I didn't do that because I didn't want people worshiping me or people getting on my clique. It's all about Jesus. So Paul said each one's saying that, but listen what? Christ has not been divided. Paul wasn't crucified for you. You shouldn't be baptized in the name of Paul. And then the last point, the mission of the church. Let me quickly, just these last two verses, this is where we'll pick up next week. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. A lot there. I'm not going to unpack all of it. But let me just close by saying this. Paul said, I, I didn't come with clever speech. I didn't come baptizing. I didn't come collecting an army unto myself. I didn't collect, come wanting people to follow me. I came this simply. I came to preach the gospel. Literally, I came to herald the good news. That's what the gospel is. The good news. I didn't do it in cleverness of speech because I didn't want the cross to be made void. The word means empty. I didn't want when people hear about the cross that it means nothing to them because all they heard was some tricks in the way I persuaded them. 
because the cross is central. Paul is basically saying, this is it, folks. It's all about the cross. Some people are going to look at this and say it makes no sense. It's foolishness. It's the word we get our word moron from. What do you do when you see something that's foolish? We make fun of it. That's what people do. They make fun. Christians, you're worshiping somebody that died on a cross. And Paul said, that's going to happen. Because to the world that is lost and dying, this is just foolish. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. When you look at the cross, folks, that's where God's power was poured out. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he paid the penalty for your sin. But you know what? He didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the dead. Demonstrating the power of God to forgive sin, but also to conquer death. We'll pick up there next week. Let's pray together. You bow your heads just between you and God. Have you ever trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior? If so, here's the good news about you. You've been sanctified. You've been made holy and you've been set apart for His purpose. Right there between you and God. If that's the truth about you, then simply say, God, today I accept that. I receive that. I understand that. Help me to understand that better. But God, if you've set me apart for something, then God, I want to be about doing what you've called me to do. And the perfect church will be a church that's on mission. Fulfilling what the last thing Jesus told us to do. And that was to go and tell the good news. The great commission. Father, I pray that would be the truth about us. And Lord, if there's someone here this morning that's never trusted you, or they walked in here with a load of guilt on their back, God, maybe today was a day that they heard the good news, the offer of grace. Father, I pray today would be the day of their salvation. Simply say yes to Jesus. To say, yes, Jesus, please come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. God, for the others in this room, God, I pray that we who have been set apart today and tomorrow and the rest of this week and the rest of our life would recognize that we're on mission for Jesus that we would demonstrate to the world what's happened to us. I pray this in Christ's name. I invite you to stand as we sing a closing chorus.